Okay. Um, so good to see everyone uh, back from last week. Uh, I wanted to begin with a prayer by St. Francis. It's a prayer you often don't hear. You hear the, uh, the, you know, the Lord make me an instrument of your peace prayer. So this prayer is the Council of Brother's Son. So I will just uh, recite it here. Most high, all-powerful, all-good Lord, all praise is yours, all glory, honor, and blessings. To you alone, most high, do they belong. No mortal lips are worthy to pronounce your name. We praise you, Lord, for all your creatures, especially for Brother Son, who is the day through whom you give us light. And he is beautiful and radiant with great splendor of you, most high. He bears your likeness. We praise you, Lord, for Sister Moon and the stars. In the heavens, you have made them bright, precious and fair. We praise you, Lord, for brothers, wind and air, fair and stormy, all weathers moods, by which you cherish all that you have made. We praise you, Lord, for Sister Water, so useful, humble, precious and pure. We praise you, Lord, for Brother Fire, through whom you light the night. He is beautiful, playful, robust and strong. We praise you, Lord, for Sister Earth, who sustains us with her fruits, colored flowers, and herbs. We praise you, Lord, for those who pardon for love of you, bear sickness and trial. Blessed are those who endure in peace. By you, Most High, they will be crowned. We praise you, Lord, for Sister Death, from whom no one living can escape. Woe to those who die in their sins. Blessed are those that she finds doing your will. No second death can do them harm. We praise and bless you, Lord, and give you thanks and serve you in all humility. The reason I wanted to um, recite that prayer is um, it reflects on the uh, strong Franciscan spirit that I mentioned last week of appreciation for the material world and how that is um, very well connected with uh, the development of science, modern science, within Christian Europe. Okay, this, um, this lecture is, is really um, three mini-lectures within, within this lecture. Uh, so we're going to be looking at Galileo, Darwin, and the Big Bang. Try to get perhaps the outside of the realm of ethics, the debate between science and religion and ethics, I try to get the three perhaps most controversial topics um, between science and religion. And you know you're a hot topic when you're driving along and you see a bumper sticker uh, that uh, speaks to it. So um, I've seen this bumper sticker, the Big Bang Theory, God spoke and bang, it happened. <laughs> now, this um, particular bumper sticker, it uh, really speaks to an understanding that there's uh, science and religion are mutually exclusive. Uh, that's the impression I get. That uh, speaking of, or if you if you hold to the Big Bang theory, that's that uh, says that you don't believe God created the world, or if you believe that God created the world, you can't believe in the Big Bang theory. Um, also, you see um, the Christian symbol of the fish, and then. Um, other people put little feet on the fish to show that uh, you know they're, they're for evolution. And then Christians came back and put truth-eating Darwin. And I'm fine with truth-eating Darwin. Um, but there again, it shows a tension there that I don't know it is always necessary um, that it has to be there. It, it doesn't have to be that way. And then there's also... I've seen uh, this quote as well. This is a quote from Galileo. I do not feel obliged to believe that the same God who has endowed us with sense, reason, and intellect has intended us to forego their use. And so some people um, try to use that and say, well, the church uh, believes in a God, but they believe in a God who doesn't want us to use our reason and sense and intellect, which is totally contrary to what, uh, what we believe. Okay, so a few introductory remarks. Often you may hear people say, oh, the Big Bang Theory, it's just a theory. Just so you know, that's not how the scientific community 
looks at. Uh, and just for those who were, were not here last week, I just want to reemphasize I'm not speaking as a scientist, just as a historian of, of science and philosopher of science. But um, so you often hear that argument, it's just a theory. There's been a, a change in terminology in, in science. So back in classical physics, with Isaac Newton, you, you've, you hear of the law of gravity, the, law of, the laws of motion, the laws of thermodynamics. But science saw with that uh, that these truths uh, were really subsets of larger truths with Einstein's theory of rel relativity that encapsulates some of those, those laws. So there was a move from speaking of laws to speaking of theories. And so, just real quick, a law is a universal and invariable fact of the physical world. A hypothesis is uh, a suggested explanation for uh, some phenomenon. And it can be tested through the scientific method. So some hypotheses may be false, and then they discard them. Others, um, there's more credence given to them, and so they after some time, they might move up to where it becomes a theory. Now, a theory in in common parlance, you know, you, you say, "Oh, I, I have a theory." You know, I have a theory that corn grows on the dark side of the moon. Well, that is totally unsubstantiated um, on my part for saying that. But in science, when they speak of a theory, they're not saying that they're simply guessing that this might be right. They're saying that we've done. Um, we researched this a lot, and we, we there's there's some evidence there for us to hold that. Now they're they're not committing to that, but they're saying that it's more than just a you know a guess or a, a speculation. And just to um, reiterate that point. Uh, National Academy of Sciences, um, and I'm quoting here, they, they say some scientific explanations are so well established that no new evidence is likely to alter them. The ex explanation becomes a scientific theory. In everyday language, a theory means a hunch or speculation, not so in science. In science, the word theory refers to a comprehensive explanation of an important feature of nature that is supported by many fact facts gathered over time. So just keep that in mind. When we're speaking of these things. Uh, that in terms of the scientific community, when they speak of theories, they are talking about there's good evidence that they've gathered to hold to, to some of these theories. Okay, first, the Galileo case. Um, this is uh, an interesting story. Uh, as with so many things, uh, the reality is much more complex than the, the myth that you often hear. The, the story that you often hear is that you know the church is against science and they they squashed uh, Galileo um, trying to teach uh, that the Earth um, revolved around the sun and that the the church was still back in the dark ages and they didn't want to let go of, of, of their belief that the sun uh, revolved around the Earth. But as I said, the, the reality is much more complex. And so I'm going to try to recount that story to you. So the first part to uh, uh, keep in mind in the story is Copernicus uh, came out with his book uh, on the revolutions of the celestial spheres in 1543. And that he um, overthrows the Ptolemaic understanding of, of the world. And, or the Aristotelian Ptolemaic, Ptolemaic understanding of the world, and that being that the Earth is stationary, and that it's the center of the universe, as they understood it, and that the heavenly spheres and the heavenly bodies revolved around the Earth in circular motion, because they believed that circular motion was, was perfect motion, because the point that you began is the point at which you end. So it, it, uh, there was each eternity about it. Uh, motion here on Earth is either upward or downward. The light things go up, heavy things go down. So um, this is uh, this is the Ptolemaic uh, understanding of 
the, uh, the universe at that time. And then Copernicus comes along and he uh, speculates that instead of the Earth being stationary, it's moving. Geokineticism, meaning that the Earth is moving and that uh, it's not uh, geocentrism, it's heliocentrism, meaning the sun is the center of the universe. And so um, this, this went against common sense because, I mean, even today you look in the sky and it looks as though the sun moves across the sky, the moon goes across the sky, the stars go across the sky. So uh, it, it went against common sense, it went against uh, thousands of years of uh, astronomical theory. Uh, the, the Ptolemaic system worked perfectly well, um, or it would work very well for um, ships trying to find um, their location on the ocean, and, um, and so it worked very well. And also there was no proof to back up Copernicus', Copernicus um, uh, claim. And this is where this complex drawing comes in, in, in the picture. Uh, a stellar parallax is, and I'll just explain it. So if, if the Earth is moving and it revolves around the sun, that means in the spring, an observer will be on this side of the sun, and then in the, in the fall, they'll be on this side of the sun. So a distance of, let's just say for simplicity, say there's a million miles between here and here, and a million miles. So two million miles apart, and a star that's closer to us, um, as opposed to distant stars, there should be a shift in our um, viewing the star that it will it'll actually move um, against the backdrop of the more distant stars. And you can uh, actually do this experiment at home with, um, uh, you can just place an object on a table and close one eye and you'll see the object and then close the other eye and it will shift. And that's what parallax, that's what parallax is. So stellar parallax moving of the star from one uh, position in the sky to another position. And so, just trying to show here, observer A would see the star against the black background. Observer B would see it against the white background. But at that time, the uh, technology was such that they could not see stellar parallax. We can see that today with finer instrument instruments. So, you know, that is one argument against the Copernican theory. Okay, so now moving to Galileo. He was a proponent of Copernican and Copernicus. And so there's two phases in the whole Galileo affair. And the first phase is uh, in between 1613 and 1616. It starts out by Galileo writing a letter to a friend of his, or a student of his, Father Benedetto Castelli. These are all Italian names. And he, he's explaining in this letter to Father Benedetto that, uh, that he was explaining the, the story of Joshua. You're probably all familiar with the story of Joshua. Joshua's fighting, and he prays to God that uh, the day be lengthened so that, uh, because they were winning the battle, and so he prays to God that the day be lengthened so that they will totally defeat their enemy. And so it says the sun stood still, the moon uh, stood still. And so Galileo writes to Father Benedetto and, and says that we need to interpret scripture according to um, proper scientific understanding. And, okay, so, so the next figure that comes in is Father Tommaso uh, Caccini, he's a Dominican friar, and he gives a homily in 1614 saying that uh, Galileo, Copernicus, and uh, Galileo's followers are all teaching heresy. And so he makes a big stink in, in Florence, and this leads to another Dominican, Dominican friar, Father Niccolo Lorini, uh, uh, writing to the Inquisition, which is uh, basically the, the church's court, or the, the, the Roman Inquisition, and saying that Galileo is teaching heresy and that, uh, and he also forwards the letter that Galileo had written to Father Benedetto. But um, it's interesting that we have the original letter that Galileo wrote, and then the letter that was sent to the Inquisition, and it's 
it's it, they're different. There's there's a couple things uh, that were put in that was not in the original letter that Galileo sent. So uh, remember that these two were Dominicans. Um, so there was some animosity between the Dominicans and Galileo. The Jesuits, on the other hand, uh, tended to favor uh, Galileo. So there was. Uh, oftentimes, uh, the myth again paints the picture that Galileo was against the church. Um, you know, the church is on one side and Galileo's on the other side. When in fact, there were church officials and, and religious figures on both sides of the issue. Some supporting Galileo, some uh, uh, against him. So, Father Castell is a Jesuit? Oh, I don't know. I, I don't know that. Um, he was a student of Galileo's. So, um, so then uh, Cardinal Robert, uh, Saint Cardinal Robert Bellarmine enters the picture in 1616, and he um, praises uh, Galileo for, at least initially, what he says is uh, suppositionally and not absolutely teaching Copernicanism meaning um, teaching it um, as, a, as a possibility, but not absolutely saying this is the truth. Because doing so without uh, enough evidence could be dangerous. So in principle, uh, what uh, Cardinal uh, Bellarmine was saying was, there's really no disagreement here necessarily, but all we need is, is more proof, and we could uh, reinterpret scripture according to uh, new evidence. Whereas Galileo was wanting to assert um, this theory without uh, enough evidence, and and because of that, he wanted to reinterpret scripture. And so uh, the church, on the other hand, uh, Robert Bellarmine was wanting to use caution, saying. Um, yes, we can we can look at scripture again, but let's before we um, you know there's so many different scientific um, claims out there. If we take every unproven claim to try to re reinterpret scripture, it would cause confusion and a mess. So let's wait until we have enough evidence to start looking at scripture again. Um, but Galileo did not want to give that option to the church. He either said accept the theory or accept uh, Copernicanism and reinterpret scripture or the church you condemn it and um, he didn't give the other option he didn't accept the other option of let's give it some time to see if there's uh, evidence and, and enough to demonstrate that Copernicanism is true okay so there was an agreement at this point between uh, Cardinal, Cardinal Bellarmine and Galileo that Galileo would not teach Copernicanism um, from that point on as an absolute truth. And so now we move to the second phase, which is um, the trial of Galileo in 1633. Now in 1623, uh, Galileo's friend becomes Pope. It's always nice when your friend becomes Pope. Uh, his friend becomes Pope, uh, Pope Urban VIII. And in 1624, Galileo goes and meets Pope Urban VIII. And Pope Urban VIII says, um, it's fine that you can you, you teach that the earth is, is moving, but um, always um, uh, make the claim that only God ultimately knows the, how the universe is, is, is arranged. And so then in 1632, or um, after that, uh, Galileo starts writing his book, The Dialogue on the Two Chief um, World Systems. And in that book, he um, puts the argument of the Pope, his friend, into the mouth of a, of a fool. Um, yeah, there, there were several um, uh, characters in this book, and one of them is is a fool, and he puts the Pope's argument into the mouth of the fool. So the Pope was was greatly offended by this, obviously. And Galileo, um, his his personality was such he was very arrogant, he was very confrontational, and this contributed to uh, the, the the friction. 
And so at this point, um, Galileo's called in and um, at this point, um, he's called in and also at this point, the Pope finds out that Galileo had an agreement with Cardinal Bellarmine not to, to teach Copernicanism, which he do, in fact does in this book. And so on, on those grounds, Galileo is taken to trial. And it's not over the teaching of heliocentrism. It's over the issue of whether he broke his promise with Cardinal Bellarmine or not. And so he goes, he goes to trial, and he's convicted, and he's put under house arrest for the rest of his life. Now, um, as, I, as I mentioned in the notes, he was, he was never tortured. He was never um, harshly um, in prison or anything like that. In fact, his house, I, would, I, would, I wouldn't mind having a house arrest like, like he had. Um, he had his own um, uh, 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 wait staff. He had um, servants. Uh, so it was a it was a comfortable um, existence that he had. They just did, they just felt that uh, uh, with him continually teaching could be a dangerous uh, thing. Because remember, this is not uh, far um, after the Protestant Reformation, fifteen seventeen. So. The church was very sensitive to people trying to reinterpret scripture um, because they've had so, had so many problems in Northern Europe. And so Galileo comes along trying to reinterpret scripture, saying he knew his interpretation was better than the church's theologians. And so it caused great concern um, with, with the church over that. And they said, Galileo, um, if you could prove that this theory is, is true, then that would be a different thing. And so he, he came up with um, the belief that the tides were a proof for the earth moving, which is absolutely wrong. You know, the tides are, are caused by the gravity uh, from the moon and the, uh, the interaction between the moon and the earth. Uh, and then he also, and, and in fact, his, his his theory of heliocentrism is actually wrong as well, because he didn't only claim that the sun was the center of the solar system, but that the sun was the center of the universe, the whole the whole universe, which we know is is false. So, the church in her wisdom was right, in, after all, in in wanting to wait to to see more evidence for this this new uh, theory, whereas Galileo is wanting to try to push the issue and reinterpret scripture um, uh, immediately. And remember from last lecture, St. Augustine had this understanding of having a proper understanding of, of the scientific world and, and using that as an aid to your interpretation of scripture. So Galileo and the church agreed on that, that you, you can use science in your, as an aid to interpret scripture, but it was just a difference of, of the church being more cautious and Galileo wanting to push the issue more. So then in uh, 1979, the last point in this, um, Pope John Paul II um, convened a commission to reinvestigate the whole Galileo case. And he, he says that, or this uh, commission says that, yes, there were errors made on the part of church officials, um, theologians trying to be scientists, and but on the flip side, Galileo, a scientist trying to be a theologian. And John, John Paul II, I want to quote here, he says, the Galileo case has been sort of a myth in which the image fabricated out of the events was quite far removed, removed from reality. In this perspective, the Galileo case was the symbol of the church's supposed rejection of scientific progress. The myth has played a considerable cultural role. So even today, you still have that myth out there that uh, they say, oh, well, look at the church. Um, they, they condemn Galileo. Um, the church is against science. The church is against progress. When, in fact, as I said, the, the, the reality is much more complex than, uh, than the myth. And then the last um, 
point in the story. Um, just a few weeks ago, it was announced that a new statue of Galileo will be um, at the Pontifical Academy of the Sciences at, at the Vatican to uh, just reemphasize that the church does recognize, recognize the contributions that Galileo made to the uh, world of science and that there is no animosity there. That there were misunderstandings um, at the time, but um, that there is, is really no uh, conflict again between science and religion, faith and reason. Okay, moving now to Darwin and evolution. First point I want to mention there is not all evolution theories are Darwinian in the sense that Dar uh, Darwinian evolutionary, evolutionary theory teaches, as it says, an unguided, unplanned process of random variation and natural selection. And as Pope John Paul II uh, says in his, his letter on evolution uh, to the Academy of Sciences, he says that we can speak of many evolutionary theories, not only one evolution theory. Okay, so Darwin uh, published his book, The Origin of Species, in 1859, and then The Descent of Man in 1871. Now, you know, it's often thought uh, that, I mean, it did make a splash when it, when it first came out, but it wasn't as controversial as it became later in the 19-teens, particularly here in America with the rise of fundamentalism because um, uh, a group of Christians, uh, fundamentalists, at that point felt threatened by um, new advances in science, new advances in scriptural interpretations, and so that um, the Darwinian theory became much more controversial at that point. And you're all familiar with the famous uh, Scopes, Scopes Monkey Trial of, of 1925, and that um, that is coming out of that fundamentalist attitude toward Darwinian evolution. In Tennessee, there was a law that um, said that evolution could not be taught in public schools. And so it was actually a case that was, was just set up. They, uh, the ACLU approached the teacher to push the issue and, and teach evolution in the school. And so he's brought to trial. And it was, it was really just a, um, it was more like a, a, a circus because um, in, in the end, the teacher was fine, but then the fine was dropped. and. Um, and it, it was just, once again, it was uh, the fundamentalists fighting against uh, secular humanists, and the whole thing was, was really just, uh, like I said, a circus. But, um, okay, Darwin made, makes three points. He says that there's common ancestry. So he says all um, organisms, all life, life comes from either one ancestor or a small group of ancestors. The second point is that there's random variation of organs, of instinct, of forms. And then the third point is that natural selection is the mechanism by which new species arise. And so, and then on this last point, um, one, of his, one of his earlier followers, Herbert Spencer, was the one that coined the phrase of the survival of the fittest. And that, that understanding of natural selection that uh, good traits are passed on to offspring, um, that understanding passed on into um, racist um, philosophies, into eugenics. So you see that in Nazism, uh, Margaret Sanger with Planned Parenthood. Uh, so, um, so, okay, those are the, the I would say the three main points of, of Darwin on evolution. Now, evolution uh, wasn't developed by by Darwin. It was actually, um, or the modern understanding was actually developed by another man, Buffon, about 100 years before uh, Darwin. 
But what Darwin contributed that was new was the mechanism of natural selection and random variation. So he brought in um, this understanding of, of, of randomness, and, and there was no planned order to it. So it, it, it takes God out of the picture as well, or it can take God out of the picture. So there's, and, and there's three basic positions on the um, origins of the universe, of, of life, and of humanity, and that being uh, one, that creation was, uh, it was a special creation and it was instantaneous. Uh, the second is uh, the understanding that uh, there was a developmental creation or uh, a theistic evolution. So God created, but he created over time and, it, and things have evolved. And then the third is an atheistic evolution, which Darwinism would fall under, that is simply random forces, that God is out of the picture, and that uh, things have just come onto the scene and have evolved over time. And so, uh, so that's how, those are the three basic questions, or three basic positions answering how, but, um, and along with that, the question of when, um, basically, you have special creationists saying that uh, the universe and, and man and life all came about at the same time, and that was between 6,000 and 10,000 years ago. And then the second position, uh, atheistic evolution, uh, that, the, that they happened at different times, that the universe was uh, came about anywhere between 10 and 20 billion years ago, that life developed here on Earth about 4 billion years ago, and that modern man developed about 30,000 years ago. And then the last um, theistic evolution, you have a mixture. Um, some theistic evolutionarists would say that uh, it's closer to um, what the special creationists would say, and others say it's closer to what, um, uh, as far as time goes, uh, what the atheistic evolutionarists say or it's sort of a, maybe somewhere in the middle. Okay, so what does the church teach regarding the origins of the universe of life and humanity? So the first point is that the church infallibly teaches that uh, the universe was created out of nothing and the universe is of infinite age. So that's important to, to remember. Oh, did I say infinite? Uh, yeah, I'm sorry. Finite case. It's embarrassing. Uh, 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 drink of water here. Now, the church does not take a position on whether the galaxies and stars and planets developed right at the, the time the universe was created or whether they developed over time. So the church doesn't take a position on that. And then in terms of bio biological evolution, the church, again, does not uh, really take a position on that either. Life could have developed over time, or it could have been developed instantaneously. Um, however, whichever way the church says that it would be under the guidance of God. And then the last point uh, concerning human evolution uh, the church is a little more specific on this, that um, that the human body could have developed from other biological forms. And here again, if it did, it would be under the guidance of God. But then, if um, whatever the case may be, the human soul was specially created by God. Now, as I said, um, evolutionary thinking um, was is not really new with, with Darwin. And you see that in um, some of the church fathers. St. Augustine had this understanding of, of seminal reasons, um, those being sort of, um, what do you say, would be like dispositions or powers that God placed into uh, these primordial elements and that uh, these powers developed over time. So they were like seeds, and like a seed grows into a, a tree or a plant. So too, in the beginning of the universe, God placed these seeds um, 
and over time they developed into various um, life forms. Also, um, th there's Aquinas uh, teaches of the difference between uh, primary uh, causality as opposed to secondary causality. So God acting in the world directly would be uh, primary causality, but God often doesn't act that way. He often um, creates, and these creatures have their own causality. And so that would be what, what you would call secondary causality. So a river, for instance, uh, may erode um, a hillside. So what causes the erosion of the hillside? The river does, in one sense, but in another sense, God is the primary cause, causes that erosion. Or, um, or a human can build a house, so um, what's the cause of that building of that house? Well, that individual built the house, so as a secondary cause, he built it, but uh, as a primary cause, God, who put that power into that individual to build that house, is the primary cause. So oftentimes, difficulty in harmonizing evolution with <clears throat> God's action in the world is oftentimes a misunderstanding of primary and secondary causality. Okay, um, just um, on the, the book of Genesis, particularly the first two chapters, and the six days of creation, there's two basic ways to read uh, the creation story. Uh, one, uh, chronological reading, um, taking uh, at, at face value that it's seven... Uh, 24 hour days or um, seven ages or seven periods of time um, that um, like a day but just much longer and so that's a chronological reading of, of scripture there's also a topical uh, reading of scripture and that is, is more um, grouping historical material by topic so if you recall, in Scripture, uh, there were two problems facing the world. It was it was formless and empty. So, um, on day one, uh, God uh, separated light from dark. Day two, He separated the waters. above and below the, the dome. Day three, he separated the waters from the land. And then the next three days correspond to, um, so he, he, he brought form into what was formless. And so the next three days, what was empty, he brought uh, uh, the stars, the sun, the moon. Uh, day, day five, he um, populated um, the sky with birds, the, the waters of the sea with fishes. And then in day six, he created the land animals, and then finally man and woman. And so this is another way to read scripture that it doesn't necessarily speak in chronological um, way, but in, in a topical way. And just to just to back up uh, that, Pope Pius XII um, says, what is the literal sense of a passage is not always as obvious in the speeches and writings of the ancient authors of the East as it is in the works of our own time. For what they wish to express is not to be determined by the rules of grammar and philology alone, nor solely by the context. The interpreter must, as it were, go back wholly in spirit to those remote centuries of the East, and with the aid of history, archaeology, ethnology, and other sciences, 
accurately determine what modes of writing, so to speak, the authors of that ancient period would be likely to use, and in fact did use. For the ancient peoples of the East, in order to express their ideas, did not always employ these forms or kinds of speech which we use today, but rather those used by the men of their times and countries. What those exactly were, the commentator cannot determine as it were in advance, but only after careful, careful examination of the ancient literature of the East. So what Pope Pius XII is saying there is that the writers of the East often write in uh, different literary forms that we're not always familiar with. And so in uh, properly interpret, interpreting scripture, it's helpful to have an under, understanding of the literary forms that those writers would, would be using. Okay, now um, just for one final point. Um, so Genesis, is, the church teaches Genesis is real history. Um, so um, although the literary form that it takes may not uh, read like a, a newspaper article, but that it, it reflects real history, that Adam and Eve are real people, that uh, the creation of, of the human uh, man and woman and the fall are real events, and so um, it's true history. It's just um, we're not all often familiar with um, the way that uh, these writers write um, and so sometimes it can cause confusion, I think. Okay, um, moving now to some papal statements regarding evolution. So, um, as I said, Pope John Paul II addressed the Pontifical Academy of the Sciences regarding evolution. He says, uh, today, more than a half century after the appearance of the Southern Encyclical Humanae Generis, uh, which also addressed um, Evolution, Pope Pius XII. Some new findings lead us toward the recognition of evolution as more than a hypothesis. In fact, it is remarkable that this theory has been has had progressively greater influence on the spirit of researchers following a series of discoveries in different scholarly disciplines. The convergence in the results of these independent studies, which was neither planned nor solved, constitutes in itself a significant argument in favor of the theory. Now, um, once again, um, uh, newspapers and media outlets uh, immediately you know, said, you know, the church uh, reverses her um, understanding of evolution or, you know, they say all these crazy things. Um, but here again, you, you got to understand what he's saying. Uh, and Cardinal Schoenborn uh, is the Cardinal of, of Vienna, also uh, wrote. Um, to just clarify some misunderstandings that came after that. He said, evolution in the sense of common ancestry might be true, but evolution in the neo-Darwinian sense, an unguided, unplanned process of random variation and natural selection, is not. So the Pope certainly was not saying that evolution uh, can be this random, unplanned, uh, atheistic understanding of the universe uh, as um, a neo-Darwinian understanding of evolution would uh, would say. And also, um, in April of 2005, Pope Benedict XVI said in his homily when he uh, at his coordination mass, he said, "We are not some causal and meaningless product of evolution. Each of us is the result of a thought of God." Each of us is willed, each of us is loved, each of us is necessary. So just to back up that, that, that principle that however um, life forms have, have come upon this earth, God has guided that process all along. So whether, um, whether it was an instantaneous creation or an evolutionary uh, process, uh, God guided uh, whatever the process was. Okay, um, now moving on to the scientific data that is often used to back up the, the theory of evolution. And here again, I would, I would point out four main points that they often point to. And that would be um, evidence from comparative uh, 
anatomy. Uh, so you look at the wings of bats, the, the flippers of whales, and, and the arms of, of people, and that, that there's a, 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 I guess, a similarity there, and that might point to a common ancestry. Then there's also vestigial organs, uh, which are organs that no longer have a function. And so the argument is that if, if a life form was perfect, or if it was created um, instantaneously, then it should have a perfected body, um, so it shouldn't have useless organs. So in the, in the human body, um, it said that um, the appendix and the tailbone are both vestigial organs because they serve no purpose. And then the third, third point is there's a structural unity to all life, that all life um, has, has made up of cells, all life uh, uses uh, similar uh, building blocks, protein, uh, proteins, carbohydrates. And then the last point, uh, perhaps, uh, what they believe to be the strongest is uh, the records in the fossil records um, showing evidence of ancient life and uh, uh, process of, of, of development over time. Now, of course, in the fossil records, there are some problems with that. There's gaps in, in the, the fossil records as well as there's distinctive organisms that don't seem to change over millions of years. Uh, but um, it, it does seem that there is some type of development if you look at the uh, various life forms over uh, periods of time. Okay, moving now to our last um, uh, little lecture here uh, on the Big Bang. Uh, the Big Bang um, basically has makes three um, assertions that the universe is expanding, that it is uh, cooling, and that it had a beginning. And so this all came about in the 20th century. Uh, and it's, it's, it's an interesting story. Uh, first, um, in, the, in the first part of the 20th century, there, the, the basic, um, I guess, scientific understanding was that the universe was static that there was no uh, expansion or contraction of the universe, that it was just static, and that it was eternal, that it was, um, and that's, that's also going back to classical understanding, Aristotle taught that the, the universe was eternal. And so Einstein, when he comes along in his general theory of relativity, um, it seems to say in his theory that the, the universe should either be contracting due to gravity um, or it should be expanding somehow. And so in order to hold on to the static theory of the universe, um, he put in what's called the cosmological constant, which was just a thing he made up to uh, make his mathematical formula uh, work out so that the, st the universe could be static. Um, later, he said this was his biggest blunder because as we see um, in the 20th century, uh, the Big Bang Theory um, um, began to have more and more evidence point to um, its, its, um, its truth. So the first thing was um, Edwin Hubble, uh, the, the Hubble Telescope is, is named after him. In 1929, he discovered uh, that there was a redshift to um, most of the galaxies that you see out in, in space. And what that means is um, you're familiar with the Doppler effect where um, a race car is coming at you and it's, it's a high-pitched sound and then it, once it passes, it, it goes to a, a low frequency. So it's like, something like that. So just in sound, sounds um, you have sound waves. So too in light, you have light waves. So if light is coming at you, or if a body that is emitting light is coming at you, um, it will uh, shift to a low frequency, namely blue, blue, the, the blue on the on the uh, color spectrum. But, or if it's going away from you. Um, I'm sorry, um, if it's moving toward you, it would be a high frequency. If it's going away from you, it would be a low frequency, so it would shift to the red part of the spectrum. 
so uh, at the Hubble had a special telescope to see um, the, the, the color emitting from these galaxy, galaxies, and it was shifting to the red. And what he also found was that the further the galaxy was to us, the faster it was moving. And so, and that's a very distinctive character of an explosion. Um, just like an explosion, um, the outer realm, uh, the, 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 the particles on the outer realm are moving faster than, than what is inside because the, the motion of the inside particles have already slowed down, but the things on the outside are still moving um, faster. And so with that, um, uh, uh, the next figure that comes in is a Jesuit priest, Georges Lemaitre. In 1930, he said, well, if the, if the universe is expanding, um, as Edmund Hubble um, seems to say with these galaxies moving away from us, then there must be a point where the Earth was, or these galaxies were closer to us. And if they were closer to us, then there must have been another point where they were even closer. And so there, um, possibly there, there was a point when they were so close that um, you could say that there was a beginning at, um, and that you had a big bang that started the whole universe. And also, he, he maintained that um, as these bodies became closer together, um, the universe was hotter as well. Now, at this point, there was, there was controversy um, over whether uh, to hold to the Big Bang theory or there was another um, called the steady state theory, which said, okay, we agree that the universe is expanding, but it had no beginning or it will have no end. So they were still trying to hold on to the fact that the universe had, um, that it, 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 it is eternal. Uh, so they, they conceded that, yes, the universe is expanding, but um, there's really no change in the structure of the universe. And the, the main proponent of that was Fred Hoyle, um, and a lot of uh, atheists tended to support that position because the Big Bang seemed to um, uh, conform too closely with the creation uh, story of Genesis. Now, the next thing was, in 1948, George Gamow said that if there was such an explosion of the Big Bang, there should be um, uh, residue or, or um, what do you call it? Uh, microwave radiation in the universe as, as testimony that there was this explosion. Now, that was in 1948. In 1967, uh, some physicists at Bell Labs up in New Jersey were working on a new telescope, and they were uh, pointing the telescope to all points in the, in the sky, and they kept on getting the static, uh, background static, in their, in their telescope, and they couldn't figure out uh, what it was until another physicist put two and two together and figured out that it must be this microwave radiation, and that's what they discovered, that wherever you point um, uh, a special telescope in, um, in the sky, you will pick up um, this background radiation, or microwave radiation. And here again, um, just like you drop a rock in, a, in water, you have these ripples, and so the microwave radiation is sort of the ripples from that initial explosion. That was a, another piece of evidence pointing to uh, the Big Bang. And the last piece uh, would be the, the, the fact that also wherever you look in the, in the universe, there's an equal distribution of the lighter elements in the periodic table. So you have helium and hydrogen, which make up the majority of the universe. And what that points to is the fact that in the early stages of the Big Bang, there was time enough for simple lighter elements to form, but the, um, the explosion was so, or the universe expanded so quickly and cooled so quickly that the heavier elements were not able to form in time, um, whereas the lighter elements, like I said, helium and hydrogen were um, able to develop. So if you look in the, um, at different parts of the universe, there will be a, um, 
uh, with the heavier elements, there will be uh, different variations in the universe. But with hydrogen and helium, there's a pretty uniform distribution throughout the universe, which here again, it, it points to um, the possibility that it was, it was one uh, body of, of elements at, at, the, at the early stages. And so the Big Bang Theory seems to validate, in some ways, the creation story of Genesis. So it says that the universe and time, uh, because uh, with Einstein's theory of uh, general relativity, that space and time uh, are connected, so that with the Big Bang, the universe had, a, had and time had a beginning, and it also seems to support the Christian understanding of creation out of nothing, that uh, the physicists can uh, go all the way back to the many millisecond of the universe, but they can't explain beyond that. How, how everything came, came to be, they can't, can't explain. And then the, the last point that the universe is contingent, meaning it's, it's not necessary, it, it can't explain itself, it can't explain its, its own existence that there must be something other to explain its own existence. So uh, with that, I conclude. Um, I guess at this point, uh, take a break. Let's go. Five, okay. Three to five questions, and you know the plan. One sentence, with what's on the end of the sentence? A question mark. All right, no breaths in between. Go ahead. Melody. Tell me, Melody, I'll ask it for you. Okay. Um, were there, what was the church's position before 1996? I mean, you've had these two quotes, but. 1996. Well, you have this Pope John Paul II quote. On evolution. On evolution. Before that, when Darwin came out with it, I mean, did they just not say anything up until Pope John Paul II? Uh, well, I mean, there, there's a, a famous quote by Carl Newman. He, he basically says that um, you know it really doesn't matter whether Darwinian evolution is, or you know, the evolution, not Darwinian evolution, but evolution is true or not, because whichever way uh, guided the process, um, and so uh, yeah, so he. he but um, I mean, you look at the Protestant churches; there was immediate strong opinions one way or another. But like, as I mentioned, when Darwin's theory first came out, one, he didn't, evolution wasn't new. Um, there was an understanding, even as I was trying to point out, in classical times, um, church fathers, there was a sense that, uh, a sense of development as well. And also there was no, there was really no controversy, I forgot to make this point, between there's microevolution as, as opposed to mac macroevolution. So microevolution, subtle changes within a species as opposed to macroevolution of you know, transformation from one species to another. Um, so there was really no controversy with microevolution. And also when it first came out, um, there wasn't as much controversy as later, like particularly with fundamentalists and the development of fundamentalism in the early 20th century. Was, was, did you have two that was one. Oh, okay. That was one. Um, the Ben Stein movie, Expelled. Yes. How would you relate that to this, um, you know, and Catholic teaching? Uh, okay, yeah, so for those who have, haven't seen the movie Expelled, it, it uh, tells the story of several individuals, um, scientists, you know, uh, very, very good in their own, own uh, science, that they uh, either wrote an article or may have, maybe have taught of the possibility of uh, intelligent design in the universe, and that seems to be um, in the scientific community, um, diametrically opposed to holding to the uh, understanding of evolution. And so a lot of these individuals are fired or, or demoted. And so in this movie, Expelled, he just goes around and, and discussing the, um, what happened to these people and, and 
maintains a, a contrast between intelligent design versus evolution and the, and the validity of, or the arguments for, for either one. And so, well, that's is compatibility with what with what you're saying. Would you recommend it? Yeah, I would say um, obviously intelligent design. What intelligent design says is that an intelligent cause. There's a certain uh, a uh, certain character to an intelligent cause. So if you see a house built on the side of a hill, you 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 um, sort of uh, come to the conclusion that it just the wind just didn't create that house. That there was an intelligent um, cause that that uh, built that house because there's a certain complexity, a certain form to to that to that house. And so intelligent design says that there's a certain character, a certain stamp that we see on the universe that points to an intelligent cause that um, uh, caused the complexity, the, 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 um, the reasonableness of the universe. And so there again, I don't, they're, they're, they don't necessarily have to be diametrically opposed. I mean, there could be still intelligent design within an evolutionary process, unless you're talking about neo-Darwinian evolution, which is totally random, and, and there would be um, a difference there. It is my understanding that Father Pichorgano from yes. I made a, uh, early in the 20th century yes. a, a very substantial contribution supporting the doctrine of the church. Are you familiar with yes. his writing? Now he was um, he was somewhat uh, controversial within the church because he um, I think he, he he at times maybe crossed the line between uh, evolutionary science and theology of of the sense that we are. Evolving to higher truths in in, uh, in theology as well, and so I I don't know if I would want to go there. Right. Okay. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, but no, he, he was he as far as science goes, he was a very good um, paleontologist. Um, did a lot of good work. Uh -huh. But I should not follow him respect to theology. I guess. Yeah, um, I think he. I forget whether he was. I think he was silenced at one point, but that may have been lifted. Um, I, I I don't know the the final outcome on him. Okay. Um, where did the dinosaurs fit in, and like Cro-Magnon um, or um, Neanderthal, because those bones do exist. And I know you did have a note in here that that was the um, that was one of the the things. Yeah, so there again with, with dinosaurs, with fossil records. Um, so, that, I mean, there certainly um, <coughs> seems to be some sort of development there. Would that be the uh, pre-mortal chaos? Um, I don't know. This, those, are, those are big questions, and I'm just a little guy. <laughs> yes? What was Dar what were Darwin's personal religious beliefs? Uh, well, he was he was married to a um, Christian woman, and he himself was brought up a Christian. And he was actually going to be a, uh, he was uh, planning to be a uh, go into theology, be a minister, uh, but uh, he was hesitant to actually release the book because he, he knew that it would be controversial among the Christian uh, society in England. Uh, and so he, he he delayed for several years before releasing that book. But then there was another scientist who had a similar um, theory, and he was about to publish something. Um, so that forced Darwin to hurry up and publish his his book. But by the time he published his book, he was he believer in God, he kind of traditional Christian. No, I think he drifted away. Yeah, because based on, but did he have any personal religious belief in any sort of traditional sense that you and I understand in God? I would say initially, but um, by the time he published his book, by the time he published his book, I think he drifted away uh, from. Um, I don't know if he was an out-and-out -out atheist, but he was pretty close to it. Yes, uh, I was wondering, uh, as far as Galileo's contribution to science, what? Um, did he actually improve upon? I mean, 
Copernicus had already posited uh, heliocentricity, and I know you mentioned stellar parallax, but um, does that kind of, in your opinion, um, sort of warrant the amount of that he's given and so on and so forth. Oh, no, he, I mean, he was definitely an uh, important figure. Uh, I mean, this was just one part of uh, making Copernicanism popular. Uh, but he also uh, used the telescope. He discovered the moons of Jupiter, the phases of <coughs> Venus. So it contributes to a better understanding of, of our solar system. Um, and then also in principles of physics, you know, the, the famous story of it was actually, he didn't do this, but you know, the, the story of dropping two objects from the Tower of Giza. Uh, he didn't actually do that, but he did do the, the work to uh, come up with physical laws, like the law of inertia and things like that, which Isaac Newton then could uh, use and uh, was able to bring in some of the contributions of Galileo, of uh, Kepler, uh, of several other uh, scientists in, in this space, not able to bring it to all together in, in his works. So it's basically uh, both uh, astronomy and also physics. Yeah. Okay. All right, any more questions? Why don't we take them in private? Because I know people got to okay. we're getting late. So thank you for next week. One more time. Right.